Chuck, welcome to the show. Lots for us to talk about today. I'm pumped. I appreciate you inviting me. Absolutely. I want to start with your book. I think it's got a fun title that gets the ball rolling and kind of probably says a lot about your personality and your style uh, when you consult or operate in general. And the book's called Hope is Not a Business Strategy. Do you have like a specific moment when that became like a catchism for you? Yeah. I spent 28 years with with Lazy Boy. They were kind of my primary employer over my career. Um, and we used to go ahead and do annual operating planning every year. What are we going to go ahead and project to go ahead and do next year? Sales would go ahead and give us, there's going to be a 3%, a 5%, an 8% improvement in sales. And then we had to go ahead and say, okay, how are we going to support that? And how are we going to overcome our economics? Because realistically, we knew our suppliers were going to go ahead and, and raise prices. We knew that, um, you know, there's going to be a, a certain cost increase because we wanted to go ahead and be able to give raises. So, you know, that was kind of all our economics. And it would be all of a sudden, you know, it would come down from the executive. You need to save $750,000 next year. Well, everybody, nobody was excited about, about doing our annual operating planning. And they'd be like, oh, well, do we really have to do it? I said, yes. Because, you know, we can't just go ahead and go to our executives and say, well, we hope to achieve this, but we have no plan. We have no details. We have no improvement projects. We have no, nothing that supports it, no foundation. Um, so from that point on, I, I always would go ahead and say, well, hope is not our business strategy or hope is not a business strategy. And I mean, if you talk to my old controller, you talk to the, the other uh, managers that I worked with, as soon as they heard the title of the book, they knew it was coming from me because it, it became a, a saying that I had each and every year. That's so funny. I have uh, a lot of thoughts about that. I think one thing in particular, I know you talk about quite a bit is project management, which is obviously very related to a planning meeting. I think there's a fallacy that I certainly had, right? Just because someone knows what something is, they think that they know how to do it. It's like for, for software engineering, people don't have that. They don't right. have that fallacy. They're like, I know what programming is and I don't know how to do it. Knowing what it is does not equate to knowing how to do it. Project management, people are like, I know what a project is. I know what a plan is. And then I've just basically been spending the past couple months realizing I'm like, actually, I don't possess the skill set. I don't possess the disciplines of doing this quite well. And that's why the hope in terms of intentions isn't translating into right the consistent daily actions that are most important. Because there's consistent daily effort, but the high return on investment, consistent daily effort that only comes from project management as a skill. We had a packaging engineer at one point in time, and he had, and I can't remember who the audience was, might've been all the material managers when I was working materials or, or whatever. And he was giving a presentation and part of his presentation was, okay, who knows how to go, who knows how to go ahead and build a package? And who knows what a package should be? Well, almost everybody in, in their, you know, in, in the room audience raised their hand. Well, you know, what should it go ahead be? What should it, what should it contain? What, how should we go ahead and do this? Because again, with furniture, you're shipping so much air. Everybody always wanted a custom-made single package, you know, very small, very tight to the unit. But on the other hand, you didn't want 412 SKUs. You know, you wanted one box to go ahead and put everything in, but you didn't want to ship extra air. But as he went through his questions and asked the audience, well, you know, who's really good at this? Who's really good at that? Who knows what the package should go ahead and look like? Everybody's raising their hand constantly. He said, okay, how many of you are engineers? And virtually nobody raises their hand. He said, so what's your expertise in packaging engineering? 
and everybody kind of looks at one another. And this was before the days of Amazon. And he says, you know, is it because you've opened a box in your in your past history? And everybody's kind of looking at each other, nodding their heads, saying, yeah, just because we've opened a box, we we kind of expected that we were experts in packaging. And no, there's a whole lot more that goes with it, kind of like project management, than just opening boxes. Exactly. One that's really funny for people, we interviewed this author named Scott Young. He wrote a book called Ultra Learning. This episode was maybe, we recorded this in the spring of 2021, so more than almost two and a half full years ago when we recorded this episode. Scott has in this book this idea of, it's called the illusion of explanatory depth. And it's basically, you know, everyone knows what a bicycle is. But it's like, could you draw a mechanically sound bicycle? Like with the gears and the brakes. Like, that's it. Like, do you know, like, are the handlebars attached to the frame in terms of like an accurate representation of a bicycle and not a proper engineering diagram from right. different angles, but like just putting the pedals, how do the pedals connect to the, the chain and the chain connect to the bike and the brakes? And where, that's it. And people, it's not meant to embarrass people. And no. because I think the, the humility is just like, okay, that's a step in recognizing the truth and a step in actually undertaking the acquisition of the skill or knowledge to use it in an applied sense. Well, I think some of the brightest people are the ones who know what they don't know. You can be an expert in in, in whatever field, but that, that doesn't mean you're an expert in every field. And if you know what you don't know, you know when to bring in and call the experts. You know when to go ahead and ask for help. You know, I've exactly. been guilty of it in my past where I haven't always. Um, and, you know, that kind of one of the pieces of wisdom I've learned over the years is knowing when to go ahead and ask for the help, knowing when you're in a little bit over your head, knowing when there's a whole lot more out there that you don't understand and somebody else or a group of somebody else's, you know, do. No, admitting the deficiency in project management catalyzed the first growth in that area for me in so long because my business partner is actually much better at it. He's mm -hmm. like, here's how I manage my projects. We're going to have a meeting once a week where you use my system and we check in every week to see how well you're using it. I'm like, okay, I don't want to do it, but I couldn't argue with him because I was like, clearly I'm just not crushing it this yet. And that's like, I'm actually getting better at it paradoxically, right? By admitting I was bad at it. So super, Absolutely. super helpful. I think another big piece of what I've gathered from what it is that you do when you jump into a business and help them out is teaching people, you know, elevating and delegating. And a story I'll share specifically when I was researching for this interview, I've been really struggling with efficiently creating the infrastructure to send a high volume of cold emails because there's a lot of little intricate pieces and documentation. It's just annoying. And uh, that type of work takes me forever to do. And I'm like, stuff in the pipeline, that's important. I want to address that, respond to this proposal. And it just consistently is not getting done. And we had this blocker to doing it because basically I thought we'd have to let them use our Google Cloud account, right? And we're a data and analytics company. I'm like, I can't just give some random person on Fiverr from whatever country access to our Google Cloud admin accounts. Uh, but you're basically going through on this other interview I listened to, walking someone else through the process of like thinking through what a task is, an ongoing set of responsibility and just like, stop, you shouldn't be doing this. And just, you were really exaggerated, truthfully, right? But exaggerated the opportunity cost of doing a super low return, low skill task consistently. And I don't know what it is that charged me up about that to like really critically analyze what was on my plate. I'm like, or we could just create a different Google Cloud account for right. that doesn't have any critical infrastructure in it. And now I don't really care if anyone breaks it because the consequences, they break that and there's no you know civ civilian casualties. There's no uh, side damage from that. 
And so I'm just like, that that was a big unlock. Like whatever, obviously this is intrinsically worth it for the hour we're spending together, for the ability to publish an episode, for the ability to meet you and do all these things. Like that alone in terms of concrete value to my life in terms of hours I got back just from that one idea you shared is just tremendous. Well, we had a vice president of manufacturing at the time and we were getting involved in, let's do the team thing. And he brought a bunch of us down onto like culture, like, is that what you mean? Like, like, yeah, I mean, it it was team building, friendship, like relationships, teamwork, and let's do things as a team. Let's go ahead and do things collaboratively, not just in a very autocratic uh, environment. And so he had taken us, uh, a bunch of us down to a particular plant and we're on the plant floor and we got to talking and I use the word empowerment. Well, he had a, a bit of a problem with that. And he and I, we got in an argument. I was the type who was certainly going to go ahead and push back um, where a lot of other people wouldn't. And, you know, he's like, well, you don't understand empowerment. We can't go ahead and let the, the inmates run the asylum. You know, we can't go ahead and tell them that they can do anything that they want to do. I was like, but that's not what empowerment is. Empowerment is we go ahead and we give them this box. And within this box, they can do whatever makes the the process more streamlined, more efficient, more effective, that improves quality. Now, can they go ahead and go a little bit outside the box? Probably. You know, maybe that's what they have to ask permission for. But anything in the box, they can go ahead and run with. And he didn't understand that. And so we got a little heated. My voice probably went up uh, in volume. I know his did. And when we were done, I looked around. There wasn't anybody else in this finishing room except he and I. But I think he learned from me that empowerment, you know, is a little bit more than just letting the inmates run the asylum. I learned from that that, yeah, I probably should go ahead and have a little more respect for, you know, uh, the, the title for the experience that he had. But I think realistically, we came together and learned something from one another that, you know, one, it's a great story for me to go ahead and tell. But I, I think he learned that, yes, he could go ahead and empower people. He could empower teams and not have to worry that the inmates were running the asylum because you're not giving them the keys to the entire kingdom, but you may be giving them the keys to this room and saying, go fix it, make it better. And as a company, we move forward because of that. Exactly. That's, that was the hidden assumption, right? It's all or nothing. Absolutely. They're, they either have my decision, they give them any decision-making power, gives them the ability to overrule me on anything. It's like, right. that's not what I said at all. <laughs> that's what you heard, but that's not what I said. <laughs> so exactly. And I'm like, to be able to segment that and create some boundaries, that total ca- catastrophic failure does not lead to anything bad happening. Right. It's like the worst performance, they steal everything. And I'm like, there's, there's just, it's fine. It's okay. Because we, we drew a nice box appropriately. Well, you know, we limit the authority, but we give them enough authority where they can go ahead and do their job and they can make improvements in their job. I, I was taking over a plan at one point in time and, you know, you bring everybody together. It's kind of meet the new boss type of thing. And in the conversation, I told them, you know, it was a very physical demanding plan. You know, we were cutting plywood. So they're taking sheets of plywood. They're flipping it. They're putting it on the router. They're taking off parts. It was dirty. It was hot. I mean, it was a tough job. And I told them that, you know, while we need their muscles to go ahead and do the job, what I wanted more than anything else was their mind. And they're like, Chuck, we've never had anyone say that. We've always just said, you know, we've always heard, we just want your muscle. We want you to go ahead and do the job, do the job, do the job. But I said, nobody, well, I want to go out there and I want to learn what you do. 
I will never be as good at it as you because you're doing it eight, 10 hours a day, five, six days a week. There's no way that my, I'm going to build that muscle memory. I'm going to go ahead and understand what shortcuts that you're learning to go ahead and take to be more efficient, to be more effective. So I need that for, from you to go ahead and develop that annual operating plan to find that savings, not to go ahead and make your job tougher. I want to make your job easier. Ultimately, what we're able to go ahead and do is we started buying self-loading routers so it would pick up the sheet of plywood for them. So it took the heaviest amount of work off them. And now they all, all they had to do is pick up cut pieces and put those onto a pallet. So, I mean, from their knowledge, from their insight, from th those types of conversations that we had, and I told them I valued their mind, not just their muscle, they were, they were able to go ahead and say, well, you know, the biggest pr problem in our, our job, or the biggest obstacle is having to pick up that sheet of plywood X number of times a day over eight hours, over 10 hours, whatever, and do that and be able to go ahead and recover that night and come back and do it again the next day. Exactly. Are there signs for kind of proactively catching that? Because kind of on my same story here, on me and earlier today, I was like, there's no way I'm finishing this in less than 25 hours. And that was kind of like a frustrated, I was like, and this is not worth a week of effort to do. But I was just like, I guess it needs to be done. Like, so that for now, I'm kind of like, okay, anytime I say, no way I'm going to get this done in less than X hours. It's like, okay, then don't, right? The, the solution is to don't do it. The solution is to find a way to go buy it. And are there similar kind of clues or whether it's just like subtle things people say that help identify like this is about to be a major thing that no one's questioning the ability to just make the, again, buy the one piece of equipment that solves the hardest part of the job and lets them focus on other things. Well, I mean, what causes you the most pain? If you had a magic wand or if you had unlimited resources, what would you do to go ahead and change this process and make it easier for you? And ultimately, talking to the people who have to go ahead and do the process and they're doing it repetitively, whether it's once a week, you know, or once an hour or once every 30 minutes, you know, they're the ones who are going to come up with it. The problem is, it's like handing somebody a blank sheet of paper. We as humans yeah. are horrible with a blank sheet of paper. I mean, while it's fun, and if you're creative, you can do a lot of things with it. Most people aren't great with a blank sheet of paper. So sometimes you have to go ahead and say, well, you know, looking as an outsider, I would say, you know, change this. Oh, no, 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 you got it wrong. Exactly. People are great at criticizing and saying, well, let's tear apart the idea. So when I go ahead and offer ideas like that, it's not because it's the end all be all or it's the perfect idea. Sometimes it's just the seed to go ahead and start the conversation. And I have no problem being wrong. You know, it's not an ego thing anymore. So, you know, I can set that aside and go ahead and tell me where I'm wrong and then go ahead and tell me where, where you're right. And let's go ahead and walk through that because it's from that little seed, we can go ahead and generate what's the improvement. Yeah. Did you have, there's a lot of pragmatic psychological wisdom and these kind of intervention techniques, I feel like. Mm -hmm. Did you have a, because you're basically saying people don't like blank paper or the, you know, scenarios that resemble blank sheets of paper. So I overcome that, you know, psychological truth by arbitrarily interjecting an idea, even though I know it's not necessarily good because it solves that problem, right. it gets momentum going, and that's pragmatically what matters. And same kind mm -hmm. of thing with parameters. It's like people want the illusion of, of authority and it actually doesn't matter how much they actually, I mean, to some extent it does, but what's more important is the illusion of authority and the, the sensation and the feeling more than the actual breadth of authority. 
do you have, was it all of this just kind of, you know, school of hard knocks, just long career of just doing it and just not being effective at something and being like, you know what, I'm tired of not being effective at this particular thing. Or did you have like a, you know, you go through like an MBA or something that kind of is just like this, 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 like maybe a specific mentor. What was your kind of acquisition for all these uh, tools in the toolkit? It was more the realization. I mean, because I got a master's degree, got a bachelor's degree, I got an associate's degree, but it wasn't those items that were taught in, in college. It was just starting to understand people. And I think that's a big, big aspect of leadership is understanding and having a love for people. And again, I'm not an extrovert. I am not the person, I mean, if you throw me in with a bunch of people I don't know, I'm probably the guy sitting in the corner because I can't make small talk. But if we can get to a subject that I can relate to, I'll talk your ears off. So, you know, it was just over the years of being in projects, being on teams, working with others, you know, looking at a, a couple of great HR managers that I'd had um, over my career and, and seeing what they do and how they go ahead and function. And you start to kind of see and start, step back and say, well, what are people like? And, you know, again, as a production manager, I learned my job really wasn't doing a whole lot of the production. It wasn't, it was understanding the process, but more than anything, probably 70%, 80% of my job was understanding the people, having the conversations, walking the floor and not, I mean, walking the floor with a purpose to go out and, and talk to people. Hey, how's your job going? And really caring about it. It wasn't, oh, hey, how's your job going? okay, I checked that box off. I'm going to move on to the next person. It was no really understanding and wanting to know how their job is going, what we can go ahead and do to make an improvement. Why? Because while I'm in charge of, of the efficiency and those types of performance metrics that they may or may not care about, by caring about the people and understanding what's preventing them from being more efficient, all of a sudden their goals, my goals align and we can go ahead and, and have a win-win they can go ahead and possibly make more money because they're more efficient. Uh, they're mm -hmm. getting things done faster. They can get home and not be so, so wiped out where they can still go see their kids, um, basketball game, football game, volleyball game, whatever. They're not feeling like they, they're so stressed. They have to go home and kick the dog. Heaven forbid. Um, we wanted them to go home to be able to relax, be able to recover, but still have enough energy in them where they enjoyed their family life. So once you start kind of taking that perspective and you start caring about people, it starts to kind of fall in place. It wasn't a class that was taught that I went to, wasn't a, a training session, but it was just really paying attention to people and getting to the point where you kind of love to hear their stories. I love that. Who are you working with now? Are you still in big manufacturing facilities, walking around, you know, saving people from picking up heavy stuff hundred times a day by buying them a piece of equipment? Are you kind of more SNBs and uh, mom and pop digital? Are you like in-person for most of your business? Like what's your clientele kind of roster look like in terms of categories? I mean, still for the most part, it, they're manufacturing companies. I've, I've got a, a new client that I've kind of done the, the, the preliminary walkthrough. I'd love to get far more into the small business uh, category, even smaller. I mean, this is a, uh, I don't know multi-million dollar firm. But I think it's a small business. I think it's a small business person who wearing so many hats, they, they're they so busy working um, in their business that they don't have a chance to step back and work on their business. And I think those are the people who could probably use the help. 
um, whether it's through a workshop, through some mentoring, you know, but again, I think consultants, uh, especially if you've ever seen kind of worked at a, a major company, you see the the big consultants come in, they, they bring their teams, you know, five, 10, 30 guys, whatever coming in, and they go ahead and live and work 40 hours a week or more at your facility. And I don't think that's what consulting has to go ahead and be. I mean, I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. I mean, in certain instances, that's perfect. But the small business person, I think a lot of times they just need, or the entrepreneur, the solopreneur, they need a chance to be able to step back and have a conversation with somebody who has some understanding of their business uh, or some aspect of their business and have that, that coach, have that person, hey, I just need to bounce some ideas off. And it may be that I don't necessarily have any new ideas for them, but having that opportunity to have that conversation and to talk about their business rather than fighting the fires will get them the chance to prevent the next fires, to do some planning. Because again, it's a lot of the smaller businesses don't have that opportunity or they don't think they have that opportunity because they're busy putting in that 40, 60, 80 hour week. That's funny. Half of the, not half, but a significant portion of the value that you can provide sometimes as a consultant is just the accountability to have a person focus on a single type of conversation for like an hour, right? It's just the fact that you got them to show up and think about this rather than the insight that you provided. I mean, that's probably also massively valuable, but sometimes people are like, you said like two things the whole time. And they're like, this was the best call I've ever had. And it's like, I just literally got you to not be distracted by your emails for an hour. And you haven't done that in seven weeks, but happy to help. (laughs) No, absolutely. And my, my publishing, I mean, when I wrote my book, um, it was, it was really written from a customer's point of view, mine and my wife. It was written using contractors and people that we had used because I didn't want to take it from that corporate America type, type stance. Because there's a lot of small business people out there who say, well, you know, corporate America, they have a department or they have a staff they can go ahead and throw at a problem. And they're not necessarily wrong with that. And, you know, that small business person, that entrepreneur, that solopreneur says, I don't have that. You don't necessarily need that. But so I tried to take examples from what we had seen as a customer and how I would go ahead and change it if I was consulting with the company. We, we, we worked with a, a, an architectural firm. Oh, okay. That's a great little firm. I, I know nothing about architecture, but it was a small firm and their project management style or, or methodology was whatever customer happens to be calling, we will then tell the staff, Drop what you're doing, jump onto this person's um, plans that we're working on until the next person calls. Well, inefficient. I mean, they're making a nice profit. They're 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 doing a, a good job, but can you imagine the inefficiency for those CAD people, those architects that are working underneath the owner, saying, "Okay, well, I've got to stop. I've got to stop Sue's project that I was working on. That's going to take me 10, 15, 20 minutes." make the notes, whatever, so I can open it up later. I've got to go ahead and rearrange what I'm thinking, start and open up Chuck's project. Take a look at that. Where was I? Kind of read those notes. Might take another 5, 10, 20 minutes to get back up to speed on that to work on it. So theoretically, that that business owner lost 40 minutes of that architect's time. And architects aren't lowly paid people. I lost 40 minutes of that architect's time of in an hour so that I get 20 minutes of productivity out of a 60-minute hour. How is that beneficial? You know, and the customer is probably upset because they're calling saying, 
hey, you know, what progress have you made over the last couple of weeks? You know, probably not calling day to day. Maybe they are. Um, but hey, what progress have you made over the last two weeks? Well, somebody's got to say, well, not as much as we'd like, but here, give us another couple of days and I'll, I'll get you something by the end of the day or I'll get you something by the end of the week. So, I mean, how inefficient was that project management methodology? And that was kind of one of the stories I talk about in the book. Now, how many other businesses out there work in a similar way? I don't have any quantitative numbers, but I suspect- How many businesses use Slack and have their customers- It's far more businesses yeah. than you can imagine. Yeah, it's uh, being inbox driven or input right. driven. Absolutely. Versus priority driven. It's a tough one because uh, the response, it's trading off the responsiveness and the, again, the project planning. And it comes down to not having a system for what to do when you handle a call. But on the other hand, look at a plumber. Ever call a plumber at two o'clock in the morning? Because that's when your bathroom backs up or that's when your, your water heater goes out. Never, never happens between nine and five. But I mean, they have a process. You're going to go ahead and call an emergency number. Because if you call the office, nobody will be there. But you're going to call an emergency number. They're going to evaluate whether it's truly an emergency or not. And then they're going to go ahead and call whoever's on duty. If it's, if it's just a, a one-man plumbing shop, you're going to call the owner. But if it's, you know, if they have a, a couple, three plumbers with them, you're going to call whoever's in the rotation and let them know, hey, so-and-so's got a problem. Can you, can you go out to this address and, and help them out? So they have thought through the problem, whether they realize it or not. They've created a emergency process to go ahead and handle that type of thing. And I think they're absolutely brilliant for having done that. Yeah, I don't think we have thought through on our side responsiveness expectations at all. Like we do our best to be quick. And right. that, that's not a system, right? That's a that's an intention. But because it's also, again, people care more about clarity than speed. That right. I think a lot of people don't realize. Well, and and I, you know, I believe I'm a, you know, I, I like time blocking. I'm not saying every, mm -hmm. everybody should use it, but I like to block a certain amount of my time throughout the day when I'm working uh, with clients or, or just working on my own for chaos. And you say, Chuck, what's chaos? Chaos is going to happen. Whether you want to call it Murphy and Murphy's Law, chaos. Well, how can you time block that? How do you know it's going to happen between one and two? Well, I usually like to block it earlier rather than later because if it happens, great. Then if it happens later, you know, I might be able to push some other things up into that time. So you can kind of play with where you put it in your, in your schedule, but okay, well, if, if I don't, I get that hour back and I can go ahead and, and get some, something done, quiet time or whatever. If it does happen, let's say it happens at eight o'clock in the morning and I've time blocked that for two to three, I can go ahead and say, well, whatever I had at eight or nine o'clock in the morning, I can push into that two to three slot and I can deal with the chaos now. So, I mean, to me, if you know it's going to happen, why not plan for it and actively manage that plan? And that can also help you become far more responsive in the cases where you have to be responsive. Tell me about the motto about positivity being contagious. I mean, who wants, who wants to work with a whole bunch of people or even one individual who's just always down? It's going to rain today. It's going to storm. I don't know if we're going to have floods. Well, okay, and that might happen, but if now everybody's thinking about the negative things, then, you know, that's all you're going to go ahead and see. One of the things, I worked for quality for a period of time, and because quality is always dealing with defects, they're always dealing with the bad kind of side. 
you kind of you kind of start thinking of all these negative things, but you have to say, well, wait a second, we're we're looking at the negative only to get to the positive because what do we want to be? We don't want to be the fireman. We don't want to be the person who has to run out and put out the fire. What we want to become is the fire marshal. How do I go out ahead of time and put out and, and prevent the fire so I don't have to put it out? So there's no risk of life. There's no risk of life or limb to anybody. But yet we as a society, we put that, that fireman up on a pedestal as they should be because they are taking the risk. But realistically, shouldn't we be applauding that fire marshal who prevented that risk, who prevented that fire in the first place? That's interesting. Yeah, it probably comes back to, you know, the answer is how do you work around and systematize around psychology? Right. Just, I, I think fundamentally, you know, society is just a composition bottom up of lots and lots of individuals. And collectively, we're just not that proactive by default. No, no absolutely. Just, how do you systematize the right amount of proactivity? Well, well we well, had systematize and or incentivize, which is another form of proactivity. You've got to kind of plan it. You've got to kind of play. You have to understand the psychology. We had our plant floor. Most people like to get off early. They knew about what they were going to go ahead and make because, you know, they were on incentive pay and they knew how efficient they needed to go ahead and be. But they always liked to get off early because it was a chance to spend time with their family. It was a chance to go ahead and spend some of the money they'd earn, whatever. So every once in a while, they would go ahead and hear, hey, we're about to run out of a part. And what would they do? They'd actually speed up. I mean, how, how counterintuitive is that? Not, hey, I want to go ahead and work all the way to five o'clock so I can get my full pay. Most of them would go ahead and speed up. Hey, I can make my pay and get out of here an hour early or an hour and a half early. So once in a while, we might go ahead and float the idea out on the floor. Hey, we're about to run out of a part to go ahead and play on that psychology. When we knew we had plenty of them, they might not be in the right location because we, we needed that little boost of productivity. They needed that incentive to go ahead and get them a little bit further. Now, none of them had made plans for to get off any earlier than the five o'clock or whatever time um, the shift ended. So realistically, maybe, maybe not, but if they could get the work done a little bit early and we didn't run out of parts, again, it was a win for me as a production manager because we made our, our goal or we made a little bit beyond our goal. And it was a win for them because they might go ahead and get out a little bit early. So again, playing those games, and I, I do it to, to myself. There are things I don't like to do. Well, if I do this, I'll kind of reward myself by that. Yeah. So sometimes it, it's just playing with psychology in order to go ahead and get things done a little more effectively, a little more efficiently. What do you think that people outside of manufacturing should learn from manufacturing? I think one example, right, in manufacturing, input-output pairs between effort and value are extraordinarily clear, right? Which is why it's super easy to, not easy, let's say, but easier to identify bottlenecks and just more attention is there's just certain systems that are standard in manufacturing that because of the simplicity of the input-output pair of the business. Right. What are other things you think that, and maybe you can tell me if you disagree with that uh, theory I just came up with, but what other things do you think kind of non-manufacturing businesses are missing out on or should learn from the manufacturing businesses? Because it sounds like there's a lot of, a lot of what you do is kind of taking principles learned there and of, of course, applying them there, but also everywhere else. I think there's a couple of schools of thought that have been used 
very well in manufacturing. I mean, lean is one. And lean is really about defining everything based on what your customer values and getting rid of anything that doesn't create value for the customer other than things that you have to do. I mean, there are regulations and that kind of thing. Kind of a, a also continuous improvement. And we would go ahead and see, you know, manufacturing would say, okay, we've got to go ahead and save, save $750,000 next year when we're doing our annual operating planning. Well, HR, how much are you going to save? What? We, we don't have anything to save. So you're saying every one of your processes are perfectly efficient. Well, no. Accounting, how much are you going to save? What? We're just a scorekeeper. But again, you provide a product, whether that's monthly, weekly, quarterly type of financials. Are you doing that as efficiently as you possibly can? Or are you looking at ways to improve that? But again, those concepts, leans, continuous improvement, are so focused on the manufacturing floor that they're not applied throughout organizations. I mean, there are certain organizations who do that phenomenally, and we read about them. I mean, the Toyotas and that kind of thing. But I think most organizations don't go ahead and apply those types of um, mentalities to the non-manufacturing functional areas. And I think that's where there's a huge loss in efficiency, a huge loss in productivity, a huge loss in effectiveness. Well, you know, I have all these regulations. Okay, how do we overcome them? We had uh, an HR manager. Every quarter, we the executives would come down and we'd have to give a big presentation and we'd go through the manufacturing aspects, we'd go through the accounting aspects, we'd go through the HR aspects. And our HR manager, great guy, would say, well, the laws in Mississippi don't allow us to go ahead and, and do this and do this and do that. Well, after our executives had heard that two or three times, they said, well, are you working to change the laws? Well, no, I'm just, we're just one company in, in this whole state and everything else. Well, if you're not working to change the laws, then you have to learn to work within the laws and how are you getting better? And I think it was on lost time accidents and the number of people that we had out because of that. And it was such kind of a, a, an eye-opener to me that, wow, okay, we can't go ahead and keep using the same thing as an excuse. We need to overcome the excuse either by changing the law, the regulation, probably not going to happen, or we got to find a better way to work inside of what we can control so as to go ahead and better the, the overall performance metric. And it was amazing that next quarter we probably didn't tweak it a whole lot because sometimes it, it takes some time, takes some work. But over the next year, two years, three years, all of a sudden that performance metric got phenomenally better simply because of the pushback that somebody who was not an HR expert, was not an attorney, did not understand or, or care really what the laws said. I mean, they care because we want to work ethically and morally and within the law, but they said, we need to figure out a way to go ahead and still get the same type of performance, even though the law is the way the law is. Let's do a few bonus questions. I heard that you retired briefly and got bored, and that catalyzed a lot of the still continuing to use the knowledge you've accumulated over, over the years to add value to organizations and people. Outside of this, has anything else interesting emerged out of the, the spaciousness you get from retirement? I enjoy traveling, so I, I do a lot of that um, with my wife and I. But it was my wife who kind of said after a year retirement, either find a job or find a hobby. Um, 
I had been riding motorcycles quite a bit. Uh, old back injuries have gotten to the point where I just can't go ahead and take that the beating that a motorcycle gives anymore. So, you know, I'm constantly looking at operations. I mean, it, it's crazy. Um, my wife and I will come out of a fast food joint and say, why can't they be more like, let's say, Chick-fil-A? I mean, Chick-fil-A has got a great drive-through process. Why can't McDonald's copy it? Why can't Burger King copy it? Why can't Wendy's copy it and improve that process? Because we can see best-in-class types of things. So why don't we go ahead and say, how do we go? How do we benchmark against that? How do we improve to that? How do we get better than who's already doing it the best? So that's kind of what got me into enjoying spending time going out and working with small companies. I've got some training programs coming up here um, with the, the Port Arthur area, uh, SBDC. Uh, they've asked me to come out and do some training with some small businesses. Um, I've joined in some chambers of commerce. I like to have conversations with people there. Just because, again, I have such a passion for operations. Uh, a lot of people say, well, you know, operations, that, that's a manufacturing thing. No, it's not. Anytime you have a repeatable process, whether that's on onboarding, is a repeatable process. That's an HR process. Everybody would say that's HR. So, I mean, operations can be applied to HR. Accounting, an accounting firm that does taxes every year. I mean, very repeatable. Yes, the regulations change a little bit. But are they doing that as quickly, as easily, as efficiently as they possibly can? Because, again, they've got a short time to make the bulk of their money. Are they making use of that? Because once those minutes are gone, once tax day comes, you know, basically their time to go ahead and achieve the greatest amount of uh, income disappears until next year. So, you know, I think I see operations literally everywhere. And I don't know that everybody else sees that. And yes, some people may get a little bit tired of hearing, well, we take this out of manufacturing and we put it into these other areas. But it's only because manufacturing thinks that way. They look at it that way. They see their processes as being repeated over and over and over, whether that's 100 times a day, 1,000 times a day, a million times a day. I see that in a lot of other opportunities. I mean, a contractor putting in a pool. My guess is they want to go ahead and put in 30 pools, 50 pools a year, whatever. Well, while the pool shape may be different each and every time, while the backyard um, layout will be different each and every time, putting in a pool, you still need kind of the, the basics. You're going to have to dig up a yard. You're going to have to go ahead and whether you're using concrete or you're using a, a, a fiberglass form, you're going to have to put something in there. You're going to have to do some plumbing. You're going to have to lay some electrical. You have to put some decking around. So again, it's a repeatable process at some level. Why wouldn't you go ahead and, and make it a repeatable process and create your performance metrics around that and go ahead and see how much efficiency you can go ahead and get. And if you know that you're going to get so many customers um, and you're going to go ahead and need a decking crew every week to go ahead and do a deck at a different location, why don't you plan for that? Because does the decking crew really care which location they're doing their decking at? No. They're a subcontractor, possibly. They're, they just want to know that they're going to have work to go ahead and give their people, and it's going to be work that, that's going to take a day, go ahead, you know, fill up the day or most of the day or whatever else, and what else can they go ahead and work in? So, again, I see repeatable processes nearly everywhere. Um, 
And that's what I challenge others to go ahead and look at, because that's what we can go ahead and improve. I have two more questions for you, and then we'll wrap up. If there's a most common mistake that you see, whether it's really to operations or project management, that you see entrepreneurs time and time again continue to make, um, maybe it's something we discussed, maybe it's something new, what would that be? I guess probably the biggest thing would be planning, because most entrepreneurs get so busy working in the business that they don't have a chance to step back and work on the business. And it's true whether you're a small company or a big company. One of the things um, I remember very vividly, we had a tornado hit a manufacturing plant. Uh, it was a plant that produced those wooden parts for all the other plants. So the impact was going to be huge. It was going to impact our customers. It was going to affect our dealers. It was going to go ahead and affect our consumers. Um, we didn't have a plan for it. And I got the call after we told them, hey, tornado hit. We're you know, now on site and this facility is going to be unusable for probably about six months. They're like, you've got to find a way to go ahead and fix this. Or you've got to find a way around this. I said, well, you're right. Can't do it today. Give me three days. Let me come up with a plan for you. You know, I kind of think I understand your expectations. Don't go ahead and let everything shut down. Let's go ahead and take care of our employees. Let's go ahead and take care of our suppliers because they're going to be wanting to, to continue to honor the contracts. Let me assemble a team to get the right people together. Give me three days. We'll come back with a plan that will go ahead and satisfy everything. Well, okay, it wasn't everything because our costs went up because of it for a short period of time. But realistically, by assembling that team, by doing a plan, we could then go ahead and say, these are our performance metrics. This is what we're going to do going forward. And that was a contingency plan. From that, they learned, well, all the other plants needed contingency plans for different emergencies. Um, and I think the, the benefit of planning is, even if you never use it, you've had a chance to think through option A, option B, alternative C. And in your decision-making in something in the future, you're going to say, well, I could take bits and pieces of what I'd kind of planned for, for alternative C and apply that to this situation because there's some similarities and you've already made decisions. You've already done some planning. You've already started to look at what are the pros and the cons. What's the cost benefit? Maybe not perfectly, but because you've had a chance to work on the business, you're going to be a whole lot more successful. Definitely. I'm a sample size of one, but I'll endorse that as a great answer, as a, as a common mistake. I think that, you know, it's a very cliche thing in kind of entrepreneurial circles and business book circles, the idea of sharpening the ax or chopping the tree. And I feel like lately I've just been planning is very much so sharpening the ax, right? It's saying I'm going to take three days to plan my response to this, rather than you going in there as one person with one pair of hands trying to uh, clean up the rubble of the business, right? Right. And because you could just immediately, that could be your, re your reaction. Could just be like, well, I'm here. I got a set of hands. Let me just start clearing the rubble. But then three days later, you're like, you've realized you've moved like, because the building's a huge thing and you're but one person uh, versus actually spending the time thinking really high level and strategically. So all of this has been very applicable to me. And I'm sure several others listening to this who find themselves really in any category. Because again, like you said, thinking um, across all the functions of your business, right? So even if you're, super systematic, let's say about lead generation. I think a lot of people realize that you need to be systematic about that if you want a predictable pipeline, but they're not systematic, like you said, about onboarding, about 
accounting about really virtually any function. So even if you've been a great planner at, let's say, like the most fundamental input out prepare for the health of your business, leads and appointments and deals, let's say, for a service business, maybe you have not thought that way about anything else. So really appreciate your time, Chuck. My last question is just who should be reaching out to you if they enjoyed what they heard today? Um, Love to go ahead and have a conversation with just about anyone. But if you're having problems and you're seeing your performance isn't where you want it to be, if you're seeing turnover in your business, if you're seeing that you don't have enough time at the end of the day to go ahead and even breathe, you know, those are big indicators that say, meet with a consultant, have a conversation. While I certainly want everybody to come call me, I understand there's a lot of other consultants out there. I, I think it's really good to have a coach, have somebody you can bounce some things out. It doesn't need to go ahead and be a million dollar type of coach. It doesn't need to be a, a huge organization, but find somebody you trust and bounce those ideas. Somebody who has a little bit of experience. I think there's a, a lot of retired, semi-retired people out there who would love to go ahead and have the conversation. And I'm certainly one of those. Amazing. Well, this has been great. There's tons of applicable ideas and call outs, things that I need to take some time thinking about and this, including the thing I mentioned right before we'd started, which was figuring out how to get that thing off my plate. So it takes like an hour instead of 25 hours. So tons of value here. Thank you so much, Chuck. Really glad that we were connected through this process and uh, thank you again. Thank you.